Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I interview Dr. Scott Atlas, the Robert Wesson Senior Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Hoover Institution. From August to December 2020, Dr. Atlas served as a special advisor to President Trump and was a member of the White House Corona Task Force. His latest book is A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America. Today, we discussed his experience at the White House, especially on the COVID Task Force, politics and COVID, including mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and his expectations for the future of COVID. And just a quick note for me, I did have COVID when I recorded this episode. Thank God it was a mild case, and I've since recovered. Take a listen. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So glad to be here with uh, Dr. Scott Atlas. I'm really appreciative that you join. And in particular, I'll tell you, I have COVID right now. So after two years of being super careful, my wife and I and our six kids and in-law children were vigilant, I guess, almost for two years. At the beginning, I have asthma. One of my daughters has asthma. My then early in his 90s dad lived with us. Unfortunately, he's since passed away, though not from COVID. And uh, we were just really vigilant. Now we came back from a vacation in Hawaii, had an amazing time, landed in New York or New Jersey, I should say, and boom, several of us have COVID at the same time. So I have lots of questions. Um, first of all, thank you for your service back in the government. I think I want to start the first segment by talking about your experience at the White House and the COVID task force. A lot of misinformation out there. I'd love to hear from you how it was run and what your thoughts are to sort of clear the air about a lot of misinformation and accusations. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Sure. I, I, oh, here's, here's how it all uh, was evolving. I was asked by the White House to meet the president to come in and see if I would even talk with him about the pandemic in, say, mid-July 2020, after about five months of uh, working basically full-time doing research and writing uh, about the pandemic. And so, of course, I said yes, uh, because the country was in a, uh, having a serious problem. It was the biggest healthcare crisis in the century. Uh, the, the policies that had been implemented were the recommendations of Dr. Fauci uh, and Dr. Burks and others uh, to the governors, and the governors implemented those policies of lockdowns, restrictions, mandates. They were unfocused. They were very blunt tools that were not working. How do we know? Because the, the infection was not uh, being stopped from spreading. People were dying, including the known high-risk people. They were not being protected. And meantime, these lockdowns, mandates, and restrictions were uh, 
really uh, creating a tremendous amount of harm on people, including lowest people, and particularly including our children. And so I went and uh, spoke to the president and had a day of meetings and then uh, met with actually Jared Kushner. I go through this in detail at the end of the day. I go through this in detail in my book. And uh, he he said to me, well, would you we'd like you to help be an advisor to the president. And I said, "Okay, I just want you to know what you're getting here, because I'm not political at all. And uh, I am never going to change what I think or say, no matter who tells me to. I'm not going to sign on to some group group statement that I disagree with. I'm not going to endorse what someone else says, no matter who they are, including the president, if I don't agree with it. And he said, well, that's exactly why we want you. And so I was very reassured at hearing that. In fact, I was I was surprised uh, because I'm skeptical of uh, political people. I think uh, we all have increased skepticism nowadays than we did even then. And then I went to uh, the next statement out of his mouth was, I'm just going to warn you, though, they're going to try to destroy you once this becomes public, that you're helping this president. And I viewed it as helping the country, of course. It's my country. It's my president. But I, when I heard that, I was, uh, uh, you know, worried, frankly. And people had warned me about uh, that. And I, when he said it, it sort of took me uh, by surprise. And so I said, OK, I'll go back to California and see how it goes from there. And he said, OK. I went back to California. This is all late July 2020. And it wasn't working because things were being said that were grossly wrong. The policies advised by Burks, who is the head of the medical side of the task force, were completely wrong. They were not working and they were and people were dying. And so and it was impossible to have any impact from, you know, 3000 miles away and three hours time zone away. And so I went back for an uncertain time to be an advisor. And what I saw stunned me. Because uh, what I saw when I was told that I had to also sit in on the task force, uh, which began my, my uh, sitting in on task force meetings was, say, second week of August, roughly. What I saw was the medical side of the task force were government bureaucrats, doctors Fauci, Burks, and Redfield. These were people, particularly Burks and Fauci, that were in their government positions for 35 to 40 years. Uh, I was an academic. I was a full-time health policy scholar at Stanford's Hoover Institution, working on researching and solving health policy problems. And this is the biggest one in a century, of course. And before that, I had 25 years of academic medicine, clinical research, and teaching. And so I came in with, when I was at a meeting, with a stack of publications uh, from all over the world, from the scientific journals. And I went through and I critiqued those publications when I was asked a question at these task force meetings, I would point out, okay, this study is not valid because the methods, the design of the study was inappropriate. Therefore, the conclusions are not valid. For instance, I went through and cited the data, but in what I saw there, instead of that sort of dialogue, instead of a scientific critical thinking dialogue, I was met with accusations and only accusations. I'm an outlier, they said, or silence. They never once in my uh, meetings that I attended, not one time brought in scientific publications from the published journals. Not one time was there critical thinking about the data or a critique of the data or a critique of the papers that were published. Not one time 
was there any disagreement among the three of them, doctors, Burks, Fauci, Redfield, which is a red flag for a scientist. So that's just not the way scientific exchanges go. Sorry, yeah. Do you think that was because they were drinking out of a fire hose at the time, meaning it was, it was so bad, so fast, nobody knew what to do? Or do you think that no. there, was enough, there were enough people that they should have been able to, to do it the way you were trying to do it? No, it was, there is no excuse for it. Uh, and the reason I say it that way, these are people that were in charge for, for five, six months already. Even in March of 2020, March, April 2020, their approach was proven wrong. It was, in fact, never the approach of any pandemic in a century to use these gross lockdowns. Never. That was never the use, the recommendation. The, the idea that uh, we didn't differentiate between the people who we knew were at high risk, which are the elderly and people with a lot of risk factors who have you know, significant comorbidities, uh, that were at high risk, and children who were proven, proven by spring of 2020 to have healthy children have extremely low risk from COVID, period. That was known then throughout dozens of studies from all of our peer nations, yet they, they the medical side of the task force, recommended lockdowns, restrictions on behavior, quarantining asymptomatic healthy people, closing schools, okay? That was not the right approach. It was known to be incorrect. The data was already there. It was nothing to do with drinking out of a fire hose. In fact, if they were experts, they shouldn't have done that at all. That shouldn't have been the concern. And I'll give you another significant difference, by the way, that uh, is a very, very problematic way to conduct things if you're an expert advising the president. I said my job was not just to bring in as much data as I knew. My job was communicating with some of the world's best scientists, epidemiologists, repeatedly, almost every single day. And in fact, I organized a meeting of people, the people doing the research on the pandemic from coast to coast, UCLA, Harvard, Stanford, Tufts University Medical Center, pediatric infectious disease experts, medical scientists on, on uh, epidemics, virus uh, scientists, virologists, epidemiologists to meet with the president and answer his questions, to meet with the vice president and answer his questions. I thought, okay, that's my role. Get the questions answered. Bring in the people doing the research. We organized that so Dr. Burks herself could physically attend the meeting. That was the, the scheduling issue. We scheduled it so she could come. And then at the last second, she sent her on an email saying she's not going. She refused to attend. And then complained to the press and, frankly, to the House of Representatives claiming that there were, quote, parallel streams of information, unquote, coming to the president that weren't through her. Well, I mean, that's, I'm not a filter of information to the president. My role is to bring in more information. In fact, uh, that was a very fruitful discussion. He got a lot of questions that he had answered. So, no, it's not drinking through a fire hose. It's simply uh, the, the behavior of a bureaucrat more concerned with things that were not if you're not, let's put it this way, if you're not up to speed and able to talk with outside experts who are doing the research, if you're not able to engage in that kind of discussion, even if you disagree with them, then you shouldn't even be at the table. So we talked a lot about, I guess, intra-federal government mis uh, disorganization, perhaps, infighting. How hard was it for the White House, for the task force, for people like you to coordinate with? Uh, state agencies? Well, you know, I had a very different experience than the other people on the task force because I'm an outsider. 
And, and I mean that in the truest sense of the word. Uh, and that was also, uh, I would say, a naive position. I was a naive outsider. I, I, again, did not have decades of building these friendships with the people in the agencies. You have to remember, this is a massive bureaucracy. It's a politicized environment, internal politics. I'm not even talking about the politics on the superficial level that we think about it, although it was an election year, and I think that was also a problem. So uh, I'll give you an example. We see this in the uncovered emails uh, that came out on FOIA requests of Fauci and Francis Collins, head of the NIH, where Francis Collins and Dr. Fauci were going back and forth using the media to smear scientists who they disagreed with. Okay, this was going on back when I was there, okay, in the summer of 2020. And then the fall of 2020, I didn't even know this at the time. So these people were all working together through their agencies, like the NIH, like the CDC, covering for each other, going to the media, uh, act, actually uh, actively encouraging smear pieces. Uh, instead of talking about the scientific debate, instead of arguing or even discussing the literature. So this was a this was a poisonous atmosphere. So you're, the question you asked me, how did I interact with the agencies? Okay, well, uh, you know, I, I did my best uh, to interact. I did have some successful interactions. I would say that my interaction with uh, Seema Verma, who was the director of uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, we worked together well at getting things done that did increase the protection of the elderly finally when i was there i mean you have to realize when i was when i came in i said i'm not for blanket lockdowns and like they were focusing on stopping covid-19 at all costs i was for something that i had called targeted protection back in the spring of 2020 which didn't mean let the infection spread it meant increase augment the protection uh, of the elderly and the high-risk people. And so when I said that, most of the people in the task force got angry and said, we're already doing everything that we could do. And I said, really, how often are you testing in the nursing homes? Because we know the workers entering nursing homes were, the, in, were bringing in all the cases. That's basically how, that was known uh, because obviously the nursing home residents are living inside. And so uh, these nursing homes were, were hot buckets of risk. This was known from all infections, including all previous coronavirus infections, including even the common cold. They're really tinderbox of risk. I said, how often are you doing testing of the nursing home workers? And the answer was once per week. And I said, well, that's nowhere near enough. You have to be testing nursing home workers three times a week, five times a week, every day, if necessary, if there's a lot of cases in the area. So with SEMA Verma, we got that increase. We started monitoring in a very micro way all of the sort of metropolitan areas, and uh, we work together getting more tests sent to nursing homes, getting more tests sent to senior centers, which are non-residential places where seniors who are high risk frequent. Uh, we got more tests sent to historically black colleges and universities. Why? Because their faculty have more risk factors. They're at higher risk. And so there, we, I wanted monitoring done from Medicare of high risk people because, of course, the Medicare pay to, uh, patients are not only the high risk people, we also know who, who, are, who are the sicker Medicare patients. So I wanted them to be alerted when their community had a lot of infection uh, cases going on. 
and we got a, a lot of things done on that level. So we did get some uh, positive things uh, done uh, to increase the protection of the elderly. But in terms of working with the other agencies, I mean, you know, what I saw was uh, the CDC, led by Dr. Redfield, putting up testing guidelines, taking them down, putting them back up, uh, you know, reacting in a very disorganized way. I was, uh, and still am, a very, very uh, negative about what's going on in our public health, health agencies. I'm also negative that the NIH uh, did not conduct the clinical trials on easily available, safe, FDA-approved drugs early on. We should have known by summer of 2020, the clinical trials should have been done on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine immediately. Whether they work or not, those drugs have a mechanism of action that suggested back then that they might work, yet that was a politicized um, environment. Instead of doing that, the NIH just simply uh, didn't do those clinical trials. That could have been done easily. These drugs are FDA approved already. These drugs are so safe that in some countries they're over the counter. But they were they were claimed to be very dangerous. Lots of things were entering into the equation that really were gross errors by our federal public health agencies. And hence, we have lost trust in, in these agencies. We're going to take a break for a minute. I'm Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat with Dr. Scott Atlas. Join us when we continue this conversation about politics and COVID. I'm Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newswick. I'm here with Dr. Scott Atlas. We discussed his work, his very, very important work in the White House COVID task force. And now we're going to jump to politics and COVID. Dr. Atlas, it may sound strange to you, but I hate politics, right? I was in the White House for three years, was not a political person before. Um, I find that politics very often heavily monkeys up the wrench, the wrenches. Like it's just, um, it, it stops so much progress. So I want to understand from you your view on the politics of mask mandates, the politics of vaccine mandates, the politics of school closures. How much damage do you think politics has done in our response to COVID and in keeping the public healthy? Uh, well, I mean, first I'll say it's, it doesn't sound strange to me that you hate politics. I despise politics and uh, far more than I did even when I went there. Uh, for the four months that I was there. But the, what your question points to really the big issues here. Once we're finished with the COVID, uh, pan, the, the, the SARS-2 pandemic and, and the details about COVID, we're left with a very, very problematic society here because of the politicization of science itself. The vaccine uh, politicization was said was obvious right from the beginning. When I was in the White House, of course, as you know, I, I went up and was on the podium next to the president sometimes at the press briefings. And uh, that was when Operation Warp Speed was being worked on to develop and expedite the development of these vaccines. You may remember during the campaign, before the vaccines were uh, ready, uh, the candidates on the other side, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, literally said they would not take or trust the vaccines because they were developed under Trump. Okay, Governor Cuomo said the same thing. Now, 
as soon as the vaccines, as soon as they won and the vaccines came out, they didn't just push their way to the front of the line personally to get the vaccines. They mandated the vaccines or did everything they could to mandate the vaccines. This is a heinous abuse of the public trust. This is something very serious. Can you imagine uh, someone being a, a leader of a country making people feel afraid of the safety of a vaccine, and then as soon as they're in charge, mandate the vaccine. I mean, I, I don't know what people would believe. I don't know who you can trust. And that, to me, is a, a, uh, an unethical, frankly unethical way to be a leader uh, of people. Uh, the second part of the politics, really, uh, was in our, our, uh, our governors, who uh, we know governors and other leaders of public health, uh, including Dr. Burks herself, uh, didn't obey their own mandates okay, for themselves. That undermines the trust in the mandates of behavior uh, and in the leaders uh, themselves. Uh, so, I mean, it was very difficult to work in that environment. I think it's, it still is. I think uh, institutions, including science, including our public health agencies, including our scientific journals that repeatedly publish character smears, uh, unprecedented in, in my view. And I'm talking about journals like New England Journal, Journal of the AMA, British Medical Journal, Lancet. These are journals that in the past we had automatically granted public trust to. The era of granting trust to people or institutions based on their credentials alone is over because we've seen a complete lack of critical thinking, a complete lack of judgment, a complete uh, you know, erroneous statements made by people at the highest levels of public health, including Drs. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, Dr. Burks. These are people who were entrusted with the public trust. They did harm to the public good with their advice. It was contrary to the data in many, many instances. It was very erratic. And so now we're left with a situation where we need to be critical thinkers as adults. We need to take into control. We need to, we need to assess the information ourselves. We need to find people who are credible because they speak about the data in a consistent and measured way. And we need to make the best decisions we can as critical thinkers ourselves for ourselves, our families, and particularly for our children. And I want to make one comment, if I can, on the children. We see a massive surge in anxiety disorder. Uh, depressive disorder. We saw more, more than half of college-age kids in the U.S. during 2020, during the lockdowns, more than half had an unwanted weight gain that averaged 28 pounds. That's a public health problem. We saw a surge in severe child abuse. Yeah, I could go on and on, uh, but so far, and all this data is very well documented, and it's also in my book, A Plague Upon Our House, but we, you know, this stuff must be spoken spoken about. And yet even today, even today, we do not hear our leaders talk about the severe harms of the lockdowns and the school closures. And this is, again, the biggest sin, really, of American public health leadership. In fact, it's, it's, it's unethical and just grossly immoral what was done. We're going to take another break for a moment. I'm here with Dr. Scott Atlas talking about how politics really messed up our response and our ability to handle COVID. When we come back, we're going to speak briefly in the next segment about the future, where we go from here. I'm Jason Greenblatt with Dr. Scott Atlas on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. 
We're back on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm Jason Greenblatt. Last question, Dr. Atlas, going forward, right? Are we ready to resume normal life? And if we are, what precautions should we take or are we not yet there? Biologically and medically, uh, we're ready to resume normal life. Psychologically, we're not. We have a very damaged uh, public. Uh, for you know, there's a lot of signs of the psychological damage, and we have people in charge who are incompetent and denying science. Uh, for instance, uh, we look at the data. Yes, we have a ton of cases of this new variant, Omicron, but when you look at the actual data, there's a lot of people getting infected, but a very, very small uh, percentage actually having a serious illness, hospitalization, required illness, or death. And part of that is that the virus itself is is less lethal, but also part of it is that we have a massive number of people, perhaps you know two thirds of people or more in the country who have protective immunity because they've had the infection, and that's a biological fact. That's not something that needed to be learned, although it's been proven. And then the third reason that we shouldn't be worried is because more than ninety five percent of people in the U.S. who are high risk have been vaccinated. And no matter what people hear about the vaccines, it's true. The vaccines do not protect uh, after a couple months against an infection, but the vaccines do protect against death and very serious illness. And that uh, protection is very important. That's the most important protection. I don't think people uh, should be frantic about getting a virus that gives them a fever for a day or two, uh, but they, they should be concerned if you're high risk for getting an infection that actually kills them, of course, or causes serious illness. And so the, the U.S. and most countries have done, a, you know, most Western countries have done a great job offering the vaccines to people. And in the U.S., as I say, more than 95 percent of high risk people have had the vaccines. Those who don't want the vaccines who are high risk are choosing not to get the vaccines. And last I heard, it's supposed to be a free country. Uh, but also, you know, we know the data shows that, uh, you know, we're, we're doing pretty well with this virus at this point. So we are moving toward a situation where the virus is endemic. And what that means, as evolves in almost all other pandemics, really, is that the virus is still contagious. The virus hangs around. It is not eliminated by any of the mitigation measures. That's, that's just, that was folly to even uh, think that in the beginning. It's not going to disappear, but it's less lethal, far less lethal, far less harmful. We see it all over the world, every Western country, everywhere you go, including the United States. And by the way, I want to make one point that never receives attention. People have been living in Florida normally for over a year and a half with no difference in their outcomes from the rest of the country, in fact, better than half, more than half the states, better than more than half the states that have not been living normally. Why is that if it's so dangerous to live normally? That data, by the way, on Florida is, has nothing to do with Omicron being less lethal. That data was before, we're talking a year and a half of people living normally in Florida without significant harm, without any worse outcomes than people in other states. Why is that never mentioned? I remember when I was in Florida back um, in March of last year, coming from New Jersey, I was shocked. I, people, restaurants were full. Everybody was just living. I thought I stepped onto a different planet. It was quite, quite unreal, and I enjoyed it. Well, Dr. Atlas, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, for sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate it, and I uh, hope to catch you again soon. Thank you for having me. Take care. 
Hey, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I hope you found this conversation with Dr. Scott Atlas interesting. He discussed his time on the coronavirus task force at the White House. He has some strong opinions. We discussed the politics of COVID, his expectations for the future of COVID, what went right and wrong in the White House during his uh, tenure there. And uh, if you found this podcast interesting and informative, please do share it and the other podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. Do scroll back. We've had some amazing guests, some really interesting shows. If you missed any of them, scroll back and listen to them and share them. And remember, my book is now available on pre-order on Amazon, In the Path of Abraham. You can search my name or In the Path of Abraham in the search box on Amazon. If you're interested in the Middle East, this is the book to pre-order. It's coming out in June. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.